welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcasts are those of the speaker and not necessarily of CNS. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is the Scientific Director of the Canadian Nutrition Society, Dr. Sharon Panahi, who will be talking to Dr. Anthony Hanley on the third episode of Nutrition Conversations on Perspectives in Dairy and Type 2 Diabetes. This podcast episode is sponsored by Dairy Farmers of Canada. Hello, Nutrition Conversation listeners. Did you know that among the foods in the diet, dairy products may have a protective role in diabetes risk. On this episode, I'm pleased to chat with Dr. Anthony Hanley, a professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto, and a scientist at the Leadership Sinai Center for Diabetes at Mount Sinai Hospital. Dr. Hanley's research is on the metabolic and lifestyle factors leading to diabetes in higher risk populations, has provided a better understanding of the early causes of this disease. He's also helping to develop new prevention and treatment strategies. Dr. Hanley's research is supported by Diabetes Canada, the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, Dairy Farmers of Canada, and the University of Toronto Banting and Best Diabetes Centre. I would also like to add that he teaches an excellent course on nutritional epidemiology that I've had the privilege to take when I was a graduate student at U of T. And with that, I welcome you, Dr. Hanley, to Episode 3 of Nutrition Conversations. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's, it's great to chat with you. Thanks for having me uh, on, on the program. And thanks for your kind words about the course. Uh, it's, uh, it's complex material, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, it was a, a good experience for you. Oh, it definitely was. Um, and so we're really eager to hear about your thoughts uh, on the role of dairy uh, in our diets, particularly in the context of type 2 diabetes, which is now a global epidemic. We know that there is a need to find effective dietary approaches to reduce type 2 diabetes and to identify functional properties of foods for its prevention and management. But before we dive into that, maybe we can start off with some broader questions. So what is type 2 diabetes? What is its prevalence? And what are maybe some of the risk factors in its development? Indeed. I mean, these are very uh, important questions. And I guess the first thing to, to keep in mind for your audience is that Type 2 diabetes, or what we used to call adult-onset diabetes, uh, is by far the most common form of diabetes uh, around the world. Uh, probably 80 to 90% of all diabetes globally is the type 2 form. Uh, and this is differentiated from type 1 diabetes, which used to be called childhood onset or, or insulin-dependent diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition where 
where the, the body's immune system attacks the insulin-producing beta cells and wipes them out very quickly. And, and individuals who experience type 1 diabetes require insulin to survive very, very early on in the disease course. Now, type 2 diabetes, which we're talking about today, uh, is much more common, uh, affects uh, many, many populations around the world, and is really uh, a more slowly progressing metabolic condition that's associated with aging, with increasing adiposity, and other physiological and metabolic changes. The, you know, unfortunately, as we've seen from some of the global um, efforts to document uh, the disease burden. And so I've worked recently with the International Diabetes Federation Atlas. Uh, we have a new edition that came out just recently. The prevalence or the amount of, of, of diabetes is increasing, um, more so in, in certain populations around the world, the Middle East and North Africa, uh, Asia, for example, and then in certain ethnic groups. Um, uh, indigenous peoples around the world, uh, unfortunately, are impacted by this condition disproportionately. A little bit of good news, though, is that the incidence or the number of new cases occurring every year seems to be possibly leveling out, particularly in well-resourced settings. And so uh, whatever we're doing right, we need to you know, extend those uh, lessons to, to the populations that are experiencing, experiencing a heavier burden. Right. And I guess, as you discussed, the, the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes, um, we know that they're both uh, modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. And that among the, the non the modifiable rather risk factors, one being diet, um, what have been some dietary approaches to help reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes? So there's a lot of good news here, Sharon, and you would recognize this from your own work, um, uh, working with Dr. Anderson. Anderson over the years. Um, we know replicably from uh, a range of different studies around the world that, that healthful diets defined broadly uh, are beneficially impactful for not only preventing the onset of diabetes, but, but managing it. And you can look at this through the lens of nutrients, foods, food groups, or, or entire diets. And, and so that's really where uh, the research is going in nutrition these days is towards whole dietary patterns. That's how we, we eat as people. We don't eat nutrients. We don't eat uh, uh, individual foods per se. We're eating in the context of, of, a, of a complete diet. So we know very well, for example, that, that, that there are certain foods and food groups that you know, probably should be minimized. Sugar-sweetened beverages, for example. Um, diets that are characterized by uh, a high glycemic index. Um, on the other hand, we know there are uh, foods, food groups, and dietary patterns that are very beneficial. And so, for example, we know fruit, fruit and vegetable consumption, whole, consumption of whole grains versus refined grains, that's a beneficial approach. And then a range of different dietary patterns, if you score higher in, in um, um, consumption of these kinds of diets, you, you greatly reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes. And so I'm referring to the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, various healthful dietary or prudent dietary patterns, all of which contain fruits, vegetables, whole grains, 
uh, uh, lower fat proteins um, um, and and really minimize highly processed foods uh, and and refined grains and um, cakes and pastries and sweets and these kinds of things. And what's interesting and what we're we're, we're talking about today is the role of, of dairy products in the prevention of type two diabetes. And certainly, I, I know we're going to get there in the next few questions, but but dairy can play a role in all of these approaches and really is, is present in many of the, the diets and dietary patterns that I refer to. Absolutely. And I think uh, diet quality uh, among all of this is, is really important. And uh, speaking of dairy as one of the, the components of the diet, um, we know that there's a relationship between dairy consumption and type 2 diabetes at, as it's been examined in, in numerous epidemiological studies. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the current evidence from longer term perspective studies and whether dairy products have a role in, in the prevention of type 2 diabetes. Yes, absolutely. And so um, I can't help but starting with a little bit of methodology and, and, and uh, it's kind of how I spend a lot of my days is thinking about the, the methods that we use in scientific studies. And so I'll just touch on this briefly. When, when we talk about long-term perspective studies, we're making reference to uh, a group of studies that fall under the term, terminology of observational studies. And, these are differentiated from randomized control trials, which we'll talk about in a second. The advantage of long-term perspective observational studies is that they tend to be uh, larger, tens or hundreds of thousands of people followed over long periods of time and living uh, um, uh, and making sort of decisions um, independently. So when you're in a trial, certain things are, are controlled very carefully uh, and that's necessary to answer targeted scientific questions. The, the approach we take in observational studies, including prospective long-term observational studies, is people are free living. They're making choices as they normally would and we try as best we can to document uh, the consumption of diet, physical activity, other behaviors, and see how uh, those behaviors relate to changes in health status over years or decades. Now, when we look at dairy consumption in these longer term perspective studies, um, and we, we use a methodology called meta-analysis, which is uh, fundamentally taking all the available individual studies, putting them together, uh, applying some mathematical techniques to come up with a summary answer of what everything is telling us collectively the answer regarding total dairy consumption, and, and that's a nuanced issue, which we'll talk about in a second, but when you roll all dairy products together in, in under the umbrella of total dairy consumption, the uh, uh, meta-analyses of which there have been many are uniform in telling us that at the very least, dairy is has a neutral impact on type two diabetes risk, but really, um, the more recent data, more recent meta-analyses are, are suggesting that there's an inverse association. In other words, higher consumption of total dairy is related to lower risk of, of developing type 2 diabetes over the long term. Oh, that's, that's definitely uh, interesting. And so you mentioned total dairy products. Um, and one question that often comes up is related to the different types of dairy products. So this can include milk, cheese, and yogurt. So are there different 
differences uh, in risk of type 2 diabetes according to the different forms of dairy? Yes, indeed. And, and I think there's two ways to look at this that are very important. Um, we have the question of high versus low fat dairy. And, and so many of the recommendations, just circling back to what we were talking about, and many of the recommended dietary patterns, including DASH, uh, to a lesser extent, Mediterranean diet, and, and other um, uh, frameworks for recommending healthy eating, the emphasis is on low-fat dairy. And this really relates to concerns around the impact of saturated fat intake on long-term health risk. Why don't we set that aside and talk about that in a minute? What I can tell you from the meta-analyses of the longer-term perspective studies is that the signal for low-fat dairy consumption is quite consistent and strong, indicating an inverse association with long-term risk of diabetes. When you carve out the consumers that are, are eating full-fat dairy, recognizing that the actual fat content across different forms of dairy is hugely variable. Full-fat milk has lower fat content compared to higher fat cheeses, for example. Nonetheless, as a category, high-fat dairy seems to be neutral. Now, the precision around those estimates, to, to use a uh, statistical term, is a little bit wider. And so I think that tells us that we're, you know, there are some challenges in measuring high-fat dairy with a high degree of accuracy and precision in these longer-term studies. But the take-home message regarding fat content is that low-fat dairy seems to be protective uh, or there's an inverse association with risk of diabetes, whereas the signal for higher-fat dairy is, is neutral. Now, what is more interesting to me, quite frankly, is when you look at the complex uh, playing field of dairy products. And, 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 you know, in nutrition, we use the term matrix, uh, which is basically the form in which people are consuming dairy. We often think of dairy as milk. Uh, uh, the, you know, the got milk advertisements from way back and, and, and uh, often dairy is, is initially sort of framed in the context of milk consumption, but really a lot of dairy is consumed in the form of cheese or yogurt, sometimes ice cream. And the, the signal regarding yogurt uh, of all of these forms uh, is very consistent. In other words, people who are regular consumers of yogurt uh, have a marked and consistent uh, uh, um, lower risk of developing diabetes over the long term. Seems to be also the case for cheese, although those data are a little less consistent. And then milk uh, is, is, is in itself, again, um, also inverse for most of the, the data. But, but again, the, the real strongest signal is from, from yogurt and an inverse association with yogurt consumption. Funny things happening with butter. You would think butter would, would ind indicate higher risk, although the signal there from a meta-analysis done a few years ago out of Tufts University suggests there's a neutral impact for butter. And, you know, possibly good news for some of your listeners, ice cream, paradoxically, uh, regular consumers of ice cream have a lower risk of, of, of type 2 diabetes onset. That's a little bit of a mystery given given what we know about ice cream, uh, although, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of possibilities there in terms of, of um, 
the ice cream matrix when people are consuming ice cream is, is part of a, of a complete meal, sitting down with the family. There's lots of possibilities there. So I guess the takeaway is from a matrix perspective, the strongest inverse signal is, is with yogurt consumption. Absolutely. And um, I, I've seen a lot of that research, too. And, and it's it's nice that you, you point out the yogurt because it, it makes me wonder a little bit about the, the sweetened versus unsweetened and whether we, we see the same thing with uh, with that versus the, the plain. Um, and also that you the fact that you mentioned ice cream as well. Uh, that's that's good news. <laughs> And Chirin, that's a wonderful point you raise. And, and again, I don't want to bore your listeners with, you know, getting into the weeds of methodology. And you'll, you'll remember this from the course. Um, we actually don't do a very good job in, in many of our, of our methods for measuring the, the important details around dairy. And so often on these questionnaires and these large prospective cohort studies, there isn't a differentiation between sweetened yogurt versus unsweetened yogurt. I think if you look at market indicators in North America, most yogurt is probably sweetened to some degree, uh, although unsweetened yogurt is also available on the market. But certainly many of the instruments that we use in these big prospective studies don't disentangle that. What does that do for the results? Well, it's it's probably you know diluting the signal and 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 Again, I won't get into the weeds here statistically, but that tends to that tends to dilute or bias our estimates towards the null. So you could you can take away from that that the protective role of yogurt or the inverse association with yogurt is probably modestly stated in these meta-analyses. If anything, it's probably a little bit stronger. Right. And I mean, until now, we've talked a lot about the epidemiological research and the knowledge, and the inverse associations we've seen between dairy and type 2 diabetes and, and the different forms. Um, but we don't we know that in epidemiological studies, they don't show cause and effect. So I was wondering about the randomized control trials in this area in terms of what it's what has been done and if those beneficial effects that we've observed in those cohort studies are also observed in clinical trials. Yes, uh, this is a hugely important point. Uh, thank you for raising it. I spend my days you know, in the observational realm of, of research and, and I think observational studies, including the cohort studies that we've talked about thus far, thus far can provide us with some very important information. But as you pointed out, because we're not using randomization in those kinds of studies, we cannot declare causal relationships uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly related to the, the potential for residual confounding. This is the beauty of the randomized controlled trial design is that randomization helps you filter out some of those problematic confounding relationships. The challenge of trials, however, especially in the realm of nutrition, and Sharon, this was, you worked in a lab where, where there's been excellent work in trials for, for many, many decades. These are hard to do. In nutrition, they're very hard to do because many of the mechanisms that we use to ensure um, the rigor uh, in, say, a pharmaceutical trial where the pills that people take either as the active group or the placebo group can be made to look and taste and weigh and smell exactly the same, 
that's very hard or impossible in nutrition. People know what they're eating or not eating. And so on that background, you know, and I'm just trying to give a little bit of shout out to my colleagues who do trials in nutrition because it is very, very challenging. I think people, when they look at nutrition results in the news media and get upset about apparent inconsistencies, nutrition research is challenging for these and a range of other reasons. So to your question now, the, the data on dairy and type 2 diabetes uh, is a little less consistent. The, the body of research is smaller. Again, these are harder, more expensive studies to do, in, in the, particularly over the short term. Um, and we don't have a lot of studies that have, have been big enough or long-term enough to look at hard outcomes. And by that, I mean a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Rather, we're looking at intermediate phenotypes or traits that we know track over time with risk of diabetes. And so glucose levels in the blood, uh, um, a measure called A1C, which is the amount of sugar attached to your red blood cells as an indicator of long-term uh, blood sugar control, and then intermediate measures relating to how your body produces and use, uses insulin. And so the results have been inconsistent to date for a range of reasons. Um, there's a study uh, that, that your readers can access by um, a, a research group out of uh, Quebec, uh, Laval University. Uh, first author is O'Connor looking at these intermediate phenotypes. And what they found was that um, when, uh, again, this was a meta-analysis of a whole bunch of individual studies, when they rolled all the results together, they found that, that individuals in a, a randomization scenario, those that were put into the research arm where they were consuming higher amounts of dairy versus little or no dairy, had no changes in the insulin-based measures. So no changes in insulin resistance or in the way that the pancreas makes insulin. Paradoxically, blood sugar levels is a one-time measure. They increased slightly, not into the diabetes range, but nonetheless, there was an increase. Whereas, and here's the paradox, the longer term measure, the A1C actually showed a decrease. So I think in fairness, the jury is still out. And I think that, that, you know, on the background of the challenges of doing good quality trials, and, and we're, you know, we're getting better at this all the time in terms of transparency and reporting and sort of recognizing the problems we've had historically and doing better trials going forward. I think we need more trials on, on, on dairy products and a range of, of chronic disease outcomes, because these are hugely important questions and we need, we need the answers. Uh, the observational work can tell us stuff, but the trials will really uh, complete the circle of evidence that will help us make public health and policy and clinical decisions. Absolutely. I definitely think uh, we need more, more cl clinical trials. And, um, and, and I do want to shift gears a little bit here and, and talk about uh, a couple of studies. Um, we, we talked earlier about dairy being a complex food matrix. Uh, we know it's made up of several components, including protein, fat, it's made carbohydrate, lactose, several vitamins and minerals and other bioactive components. And, and this is influenced by processing, fermentation, homogenization, and, 
and sort of other uh, other factors. And we know that there's new and emerging evidence regarding dairy fat and, and fermented foods. And, and you've done quite a bit of work on, on dairy fatty acids. And we know that dairy fat itself is pretty complex. And um, I know there's one study that looked at fatty acid biomarkers of dairy fat consumption and incidence of type 2 diabetes, which was published in PLOS One in 2018, and also one of your, your more recent studies by, I believe it was one of your students, uh, Santorin et al. from 2019, which was published in the journal Lipids, uh, where you had looked at the distribution of fatty acid biomarkers of dairy fat consumption. And so these seem to be complementary pieces. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those studies and and whether the fat content of dairy is important with regard to risk of type 2 diabetes. Yes, thank you. I mean, these are really interesting and, and you know, very important questions. And maybe I'll I'll take a step back and and you know, the issue of fat in our diets is uh, it's I mean, it's a wonderfully complex, interesting, you know, sometimes troubling area, uh, you know, given the fact that everyone is interested in nutrition and diet, it's sort of one of these things that we all out of necessity have uh, an exposure to, if you will, everyone has to eat. And so, uh, you know, if you look at you know, social media, the popular media, there's a range of perspectives and recommendations on the overall fat content of the diet. Uh, there's uh, uh, emphasis in some areas on uh, low fat, high carbohydrate diets, and then you have the exact opposite uh, across the spectrum. And you know we can't take a deep dive into this because it's just enormously complex. When it comes to dairy, one of the sort of controversial and urgent issues relates to the issue of saturated fat, which is one of the several forms of chemical forms of fat that we get in our diet. And many public health and, and clinical recommendations for many years has recommended that we try to limit saturated fat content in our diets. When we looked to dairy products, um, so first of all, the fat profile, if you were to stick, you know, a sample of milk or cheese into a, into a GC machine, a gas chromatography mach machine in, in you know, the lab here at the university. The fat profile of dairy is incredibly complex. There are 400 different kinds of fat in dairy. Um, many of these we see in other kinds of, of food products. Um, uh, so for example, the, the most common fat uh, in, in many food products. And also, if you were to take a blood sample for me and stick it on the machine, uh, you, you'd find this answer too is, is palmitic acid or palmitate. Now, what's interesting is we consume palmitate um, from uh, a range of sources. Some animal products contain it, including dairy products. Um, also, um, you get it in baked goods and, and, and processed goods because of the use of, of palm oil, which is you know, there's a, 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 an enormous, uh, uh, and there's a whole separate podcast we could have on palm oil and its environmental impact, its use in the food supply. The interesting bit is that we make, our bodies make palm, palmitic acid through uh, 
a process called de novo lipogenesis, where the sort of substrate for that is excess free sugars. So the, I'm saying all of this to kind of um, bring home the idea that, that fat is not a simple story, even when you boil it down to saturated fat. Now, what's interesting about, about, when, about the science of saturated fat is that where the saturated fat comes from seems to make a difference. And so, for example, if you uh, have a high score on saturated fat intake, but a lot of your saturated fat is coming from dairy products, the, the, there, there seems to be limited to no risk of the traditional saturated fat higher risk outcomes. So the matrix matters. There's something about dairy products that, um, you know, their complex matrix and they're uh, uh, related to fermentation or other factors. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, fermentation and uh, uh, the processing that dairy products go through. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that might be the case. I got into the whole um, business of fat and dairy because we were interested in biomarkers. And so what is interesting about dairy products is that in addition to sharing a whole bunch of, of fatty acids with other forms of, of, of food and in, in processes that occur within our bodies, there are some unique, what are called exogenous fats in dairy products, where sometimes called exofats. And these are in dairy products and other, uh, in this case, the products we consume from ruminant animals, and so cows most commonly. Uh, they're most abundant in dairy products though. Um, uh, so we don't make them and we don't get them from, from a range of other kinds of foods. And so from a research perspective, they're very helpful in allowing us to differentiate our participants in terms of high versus low consumers of dairy, because people who don't consume dairy won't have these unique dairy uh, derived exogenous fats in their circulation. Um, so uh, that was really the basis. Now, these fatty acids may also have bioactive properties. That's a little bit more sort of exploratory science right now. There is some literature out there sort of supporting um, the uh, mechanistic benefits of these fatty acids, but at the very least, they're very useful biomarkers of dairy intake. Now, you mentioned the uh, meta-analysis from the FORCE consortium. They did something very interesting. They uh, got a bunch of their colleagues together, their friends and colleagues, and everybody shared their data, and they did a pooled analysis and looked at across uh, over 20 studies. They said, okay, when we roll all these data together, do these exogenous fatty acids that come mostly from the consumption of dairy products and you, you look at it all together in relation to risk of type 2 diabetes across all these studies, sure enough, there was a, a significant inverse association. All of these are prospective cohort studies. The work that um, Ingrid Santorin did, which was the other paper you referred to, really asked the question, we know that we measure these fatty acids in serum and plasma, but they really live in different places. The, the, when you take a blood sample at at Life Labs and they send it off for analysis. Really, there's a lot going on in that blood sample in terms of the different fractions and where, where fatty acids live. And Ingrid was able to show that these dairy fatty acid biomarkers, these exogenous fats, are actually quite good measures of dairy intake 
in certain fractions, but not others. Uh, so that we hope will be helpful for future researchers when they're using these fatty acids. Definitely. And I think um, dairy fat is so complex that we probably need a whole other other podcasts on this. So we might have to invite you back to uh, tell us a little bit more about that. This certainly is fascinating. Um, I'd like to go back to some of those um well, I guess uh, some of the, the research. And so we know that there's lots of cohort studies. We have meta-analyses that are showing consistent research. And we still know that there's a lot to be done, uh, particularly in the area of randomized control trials. So um, considering all of this, what further research would you like to do on dairy products? Well, I mean, I think it, my mind goes a million different directions because I think really for us to move forward in the science of nutrition, we need evidence from a range of different studies. Absolutely, longer, better designed, larger trials um, uh, will be critically important. And, and there are various initiatives going on right now that, that are trying to move that needle forward. I think as we learn more about both the complexity of dairy as a food and also the complexity of the evolution of, in this case, type two diabetes, that can inform us in terms of future studies as well. And so, for example, uh, um, you know, what, where along the pathway, recognizing that a trial of type two diabetes is an outcome, a hard outcome is challenging to do because that would be a massive and massively expensive study. What are the other intermediate outcomes we could look at in trials. Well, we know, for example, more recently, you know, in addition to uh, intermediate phenotypes like insulin resistance, diabetes starts years or decades um, before glucose uh, concentrations go off the board. And so we know, for example, that, that the liver starts to act up um, uh, early in the disease process. We have this process called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And we know that people with, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are at greater risk of diabetes and um, heart disease and other disorders, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, among, among other cancers. And so, you know, looking at dairy consumption and liver disorders, liver inflammation, liver function, the whole uh, science around adipose tissue um, is is very interesting. We used to think for a long time that the fat we carry around, you know, usually in our midsections and our thighs is just kind of like a bank account, right? It's storing energy for future use. And sometimes your bank account gets a little bit too big. Turns out that adipose tissue is a hugely complicated functional organ that can get the ball rolling either beneficially or detrimentally in the context of a whole bunch of downstream physiological processes. So uh, something we're starting to work on now is this concept of adipose tissue inflammation. So we know subclinical inflammation is a risk factor for chronic diseases. Where does that inflammation start? Well, it looks like it's starting way back at the level of adipose tissue. We know dairy products, for example, people who consume uh, you know, in the upper uh, uh, quartiles of dairy product consumption tend to gain weight more slowly and have a better body fat distribution. 
Uh, is that because of some impact of dairy consumption on uh, adipose tissue biology, adipose tissue inflammation? I think there's a whole range of exciting things that, that can happen. And I'll just finish off here, Shane. Um, the, um, you may, I think CNS has had some wonderful uh, webinars and podcasts on the gut microbiota. So in our guts, uh, we have this incredible uh, complex uh, convention going on of microorganisms. Um, the, the genetic, uh, the genes of which are a hundredfold larger than our own genomes. So you've got this, this wonderful complex uh, community in our guts that are having important impacts on mental health, on metabolic health. We know that that uh, a whole bunch of different things can influence the gut microbiota. And I think we're starting to understand the fermentation of dairy products alone probably is playing a role there. And I think we need to learn. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot done, but there's still a lot more to do. And so um, my final question to you is that based on what we know so far, do you have any recommendations for our listeners, you know, sort of looking at the big picture of things? Yes, the, you know, nutrition, making the right choice around nutrition is, is complicated because the science of nutrition is hard. And what that means is that, that um, there are a lot of openings for misinformation. And I think we have a problem of misinformation on a whole bunch of frontiers, politics, uh, science, nutrition. And so what I would urge your listeners to do is to, uh, as much as possible, listen to the science. There are some very good resources, including um, uh, resources from CNS, from Diabetes Canada, from a range of trusted resources where you can make informed decisions based on science rather than on a fad or on some other form of misinformation. That's the thing, truthfully, that scares me the most about nutrition and health is that people are getting information from sources that are not evidence-based. Science moves slowly and it sometimes the messages are uneven. That's okay. It's like the stock market. If you look at one day, it's going to jump around a lot, but, but over time, you're going to have a slow and steady accumulation of knowledge towards the right answer. That's how science works. Trust the science. In terms of whether or not you consume dairy products, I can tell you my view of the science is that consuming dairy is entirely safe and likely has a lot of, of benefits for uh, short and long-term health outcomes. Not everyone wants to consume dairy and that's okay. I think the bigger picture of nutrition today is take a healthful overall approach to your diet. Stay away from fads, stay away from extreme scenarios. None of that stuff works and the motivation behind it is a little bit dangerous. Trust this, trust the, the good quality science, warts and all, it'll eventually get you to the right place. Well, that certainly is excellent advice. And we've had some great take, uh, key takeaways from all of this important research. So I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Hanley. It was, a true, it was truly a pleasure to learn from you. Thank you, Shannon. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. 
If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. Remember, our podcasts are also available on the Spotify app, so you can easily listen to us on the go. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on Spotify and you'll find all our episodes in one place. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.